being a true community bank is defined as taking assets in from your community and then putting those assets to work through loans back in the community. So the asset gathering is way beyond wealth management. It is a part of the organization and supporting its community. If we bring on a client that comes into comprehensive financial planning versus not, we see an yep. eight times multiplier in terms of their net flows and a four times multiplier in the GEC that the advisor receives. Getting to understand and know the objectives of the next generation is even more paramount to retaining those assets. Every advisor I talk to thinks they manage all of their clients' assets when we know that that's not the case. What we try to require of our financial planners is get the financial plan on both spouses. I am the husband of a two-time cancer survivor, my wife. First time diagnosed with stage four Hodgkin's lymphoma. Second time had to go through a stem cell <sighs> transplant, kick cancer's ass both times. I'm sharing that with you because I am the living, breathing epitome of what it means to have protection in place for the people that you care about. What I think is really important from a leadership standpoint is that you understand the full complementary capabilities of the financial institution. And if you demonstrate that you understand where things fit, then you as a leader within the organization will get a seat at the table. Hello, and welcome to BISA Industry Trend Watch podcast. Good to have you with us today. Industry Trend Watch is a monthly series with industry leaders discussing trends in the financial institutions channel. Productivity trending is provided by our bankchannelresearch.com portal, an interactive tool that reports on channel performance based on data collected monthly from over 50 financial institutions. In addition to industry trends, you will hear our guests provide their perspectives on the evolving strategic initiatives that are driving success and enabling our channel to better compete in the broader financial services industry. But first, we'd like to thank Ameriprise for making these podcasts possible. And as a show of appreciation, let's please listen to this brief message. This is Chris Melton, National Director of the Ameriprise Financial Institutions Group. Ameriprise Financial Institution Group is a proud sponsor of the BISA Monthly Industry Trending Podcast Series. With more than 25 years of experience and knowledge in serving the investment program needs of local banks and credit unions, Ameriprise Financial Institution Group brings a depth of understanding as well as investment capabilities to help clients and members feel more confident, connected, and in control of their financial life. We look forward to learning more about your financial institution and sharing how a successful investment program can be a competitive advantage. Call us at 800-679-1237 or visit us at ameriprise.com slash AFIG. Securities offered by Ameriprise Financial Services, LLC, member FINRA and SIPC. Not federally insured, no financial institution guarantee, may lose value. Thank you. Hello and welcome to BISA Trend Watch. I am Scott Stathis. I will be your co-host along with Bob Mattel. So for this episode, we're going to be focusing on the most effective ways to gather assets. So our primary objective in our channel as quote, trusted advisors, unquote, should be to manage and protect the majority of our clients' assets, right? So that's exactly what being a trusted advisor is all about. So we're going to explore how to do this, the discovery process, integration of wealth management into the overall organization, the importance of helping clients protect their assets, et cetera. So we have two industry veterans that we'll be discussing this with. But first, let me turn it over to Bob Mattel, our co-host, to introduce himself. Bob? Thanks, Scott. And hello, everyone. I am Bob Mattel, and let me welcome you to this, our fall edition of the BISA Industry Trend Watch. And as Scott said, we have another great panel with us today. But before we meet them, let's remind you that the BISA is having a regulatory and compliance conference on November 14th and 15th in Washington, D.C. So for more information on that, check out BISANet.org for all things BISA and for that upcoming conference. Let's meet our panel. 
So let's start off with Sam the Man Guerreri from Rochester, New York. Thanks, Bob. Yeah, my name is Sam Guerreri. I'm from Rochester, New York, and I work at Canandaigua National Bank and Trust. I run the wealth management business mm-hmm. at Canandaigua National, and I'm also responsible for marketing as part of the executive team here. The wealth management business has approximately 72 people. Most of those folks are in our upstate New York territory, which consists of Rochester and Canandaigua, which is a Canandaigua is a city that is 20 miles southeast of Rochester. And we have 26 branches in that footprint. We also have a branch in Florida, Sarasota, Florida. It's a trust office that we have there where we focus most of our time on wealth management, trust-like business there. Our assets under management, we have $4.6 billion in assets under management in total. And our annual revenues are closing in on $30 million. We represent a pretty significant portion of the bank's overall income, which is one of the things that attracted me to Canandaigua National. We're close to 15% of the bank's income which is really unique in the industry. And as Scott and Bob both know, I've been here about five and a half years, a little over five and a half years. Prior to that, I was with M&T Bank for 21 years, which is a great institution and spent a lot of time on the road. So coming to Canandaigua has given me an opportunity to not only test my skills at growing within a community bank or the wealth business within a community bank, but also brought me closer to my family and some great work-life balance. So That's what I got for you guys this morning. And thanks so much for that, Sam. And we appreciate you being on the panel today. Also, the one thing I have to make mention of is I will not be saying the name of the bank that Sam said. I will be referring to it as CNB because I cannot say Katanega no Gawagawa. (laughs) (laughs) So for me, it's CNB. (laughs) CNB. Nice try. Wait, say and that one know, more time, Bob. Say it one more time. We like to say that you can't be a customer unless you can say it, and you can't be a client unless you could spell it. Oh, so I'm out. <laughs> DNB. <laughs> well, okay, let's meet from the great state of Minnesota, Matt Johnson. Good morning, Bob. Hopefully, you're all doing well out there. As Bob mentioned, my name is Matt Johnson, I work for Ameriprise Financial. My day-to-day responsibilities here, I'm the vice president of a group that we call the Advisor Business Development Group. And what is that? It's really the organic growth arm within Ameriprise. So we've got specialized coaches that we have that help our advisors grow in the three key areas of organic growth. Client acquisition, financial planning, which is my area of expertise and the team that I lead. And then also net flows, obviously being the core tenants of how an advisor thinks about their growth within their practice. Been with Ameriprise now, gosh, it's hard to believe, 15 years already uh, as time's gone by really, really quick. A little bit about Ameriprise. Currently, the assets under management, we've got $1.4 trillion in, in assets that we manage. The revenue streams that we're seeing right now from 2021 represent about $13.8 billion. And I'd like to say my team drives all of that. But of course, obviously, that's not all true because of the, the great things that we're doing to help our clients realize their goals. Financial planning, obviously a huge passion of mine, and I think you'll see that as we have our conversation today. But outside of work, prior to coming to Ameriprise, I spent a good chunk of my life as a wholesaler. And just like Sam, I I realized that there was a point in my life that I wanted to slow things down and spend more time with my family. I've got a wife of 13 years, and I've got two young boys at home, ages eight and six, that keep me busy. The last thing that I think people find interesting is I'm the resident beer brewer here at Ameriprise. So every Friday, I'm bringing a concoction. An accomplished brewer of 23 years, national recognition, local recognition, spoke at a number of conferences, but financial planning is my true, true passion. So Bob and Scott, excited to be here, Sam, excited to be part of your panel as well. Well, wow, a brewmaster. So let's see, let's get this party started then. (laughs) Sit back, relax, open up a cold one, and let's get on to the questions. 12 o'clock and where you are. (laughs) <laughs> I'm I'm kind of seeing an offshoot podcast episode on brew mastering. I think that might be <laughs> interesting. We can convince the BISA to do that next. How's that? Yeah, right. <laughs> All right. So let's dive into this subject. And Sam, let me kind of pick on you first. And Matt, you can provide follow-on thoughts, please. So the first question I have is based on this. So it's our opinion that if you are in the financial services industry, and I don't care where you are in the industry, 
right? If you're a bank, if you're a brokerage, whatever you are, if you're in the industry, you're in a race to gather assets. That's just the game that we're in, right? And the organizations that gather the most assets win. So obviously today we're focusing on what are the best ways to gather assets, right? So that's essentially the question. So, you know, Sam, you've run some large, a large wealth management program and now more a boutique wealth management program. And you've, through all of your experience, you've been able to view this question from a number of perspectives. So I'd love for you to kick us off and give us your just high level thoughts on what are the most effective ways for advisors to effectively gather and retain assets? That's great. You know, I guess the shorter answer is to be a brewmaster. Maybe that'll yeah. <laughs> uh, that'll attract assets for sure. But you know what's really interesting, Scott, and, and thanks for this question, because I'm going to talk a little bit about the bank for a minute. And being a community bank and a true community bank is defined as taking assets in from your community and then putting those assets to work through loans back in the community. Right. So the asset gathering piece is way beyond, as everyone knows, way beyond wealth management. It is a part of the organization and supporting its community. So a really cool perspective on that. And I think that from the wealth management standpoint, I'd like to say that we focus on three key areas of business development. In other words, kind of growing net assets under management. One is working with our existing book of business. I call it work in the book and everybody does it. It's basically making sure that you are spending the quality time with your clients, understanding their needs as they evolve, understanding their journey, understanding their life changes that take place and being there for them. And with the tools that we have available to us these days, like Salesforce and some other analytical tools, it gives you an opportunity to kind of anticipate the needs that take place once a life event happens. So if you can demonstrate that you're that engaged with your book and that engaged with your clients, it is a critical component to growing assets because as we all know, getting to understand and know the spouse, getting to understand and know the objectives of the next generation is even more paramount to retaining those assets. And when you do that and you become that planner for the family, then they will automatically make referrals to you because they value what you bring every day. So work in the book is the first one. The second is work in the bank uh, or working with the bank. And you know, as I mentioned, you know, we are a bank, we have a captive audience. There are many customers that need help with their financial situations. And we want to be there to demonstrate to our business partners in retail and the commercial bank that we can help make them look smarter to their clients than the competition. And by doing that, we need to be prepared. We need to be great partners. And to be great partners, you need to be able to communicate well. You need to be able to educate and you need to be able to recognize. And what I like about our bank is we focus on something we call synergy, which I'll probably talk about a little bit later. But that synergy really drives the importance of bringing new ideas from other areas of the bank to our customer base. And in this day and age, people will definitely reward you for that. And then the third piece that I think is extremely important to our business development plan and gathering assets is work in the community. So you got work in the book, work in the bank, work in the community. And the community is really all your COIs and making sure that you have a tight relationship and building and developing those relationships with COIs. We are very fortunate here at Canandaigua National Bank to have a very strong trust department with trust powers of over 100 years. And the trust and estate attorneys in our community really know us well. And we focus on those relationships because that drives a lot of business for us, that community connection. So those are really my three focal points. And if, if our advisors spend time each week carving out or allocating time to each one of those practices throughout the week, they'll be wildly successful. Yeah, you know, I love that. I, I love two of the things you said are really cool. The first is putting assets back into the community, but you built on that with everything else you said, because, and I never really thought of it that way. It just, it, it's a bit of a different paradigm. The ability of a financial institution to gather assets, help manage assets, but as importantly, put those assets back into the community. I mean, that's a big deal. 
right? And it's a big deal from a number of perspectives because not only is the bank putting assets back into the community, but if you as wealth managers help your clients grow their assets, you know a lot of those assets are going to go back into the community too because that's where they live, right? So that is a very virtuous circle. And I love that concept. So cool. We're going to dig more into some of those things, but let me pass it to Matt for your thoughts. And Matt, I know one of the things that Sam said must have really resonated and that's working the book, right? (laughs) Yeah, there was a lot of things that quite frankly, Sam said that resonated really deep. And Sam coming from a small community, right, of across Wisconsin, which is about 50,000 people and being part of a family, that community was a very important thing. I couldn't agree more with what you said, because I see it happen. And the, the funny thing is, Sam, and I think you can attest this, is living in the Minneapolis area, how do you do something like that in the in the larger communities? How do you give back more and feel that impact? But it's crazy when the advisors actually do the impact that we see. So kudos to you on those things. So Scott, the other things that I would say there in terms of the race to gather assets, I mean, I, I'm a little bit biased, right? Because it's my day-to-day job, but it's why we're all here to do comprehensive financial planning with our clients, right? Are we holding ourselves out there? And are we talking to our clients about what are their goals in life? That's the most important things. And then more importantly, what are your assets and liabilities? What are your contributions? And I think where we coach advisors and where we have success is all of a sudden we say, okay, what are your goals and what are your assets and liabilities? Where do you stand towards reaching those goals? Right. And I think that's a, that's an eye-opening experience for a lot of people. And I think it's the best part of our jobs and it's the worst part of our jobs, right? It's the best part because when you're working with a client that's done everything right and they're on track, you can celebrate. The worst part of our job is when we have to meet with a client who maybe hasn't done that, right? And we've got to have that discussion. And, and I'm bringing this up as one of the best ways to gather assets because I coach our advisors and my team does as well as we take them through that conversation around what are your goals? What do you currently have? What are your future contributions and liabilities? And you get a score, right? Whether it's a Monte Carlo or a deterministic score, people are motivated by certain things. And I know fear and greed are two of them, right? So if all of a sudden you show my wife and I that we've got a 45% probability of meeting our goals, things need to change. What I encourage advisors to do right away in that situation is, okay, you've, you've had the discovery conversation. You now know where they're at. Go back to the money and go back to the conversation and say, Matt and Betsy, you know, you're sitting at this today. Are there any other assets? Because the fastest ways for us to improve that number is to list any assets that you might have not have disclosed. <laughs> and the funny thing about it is, and I think you guys all hear this, every advisor I talk to thinks they manage all of their clients' assets when we know that that's not the case. All when right. we bring those situations, right, all of a sudden we show that they're not on track Lo and behold, there's $100,000 over here, an account over here, because the client thinks diversification is working with multiple different advisors, right? So that's the first point. You got to create that urgency and show them where to have that conversation to go back to that net flow idea. But then the generalization of financial planning, right? At least in Ameriprise, we track that, right? And we, we kid and we joke that if you ever run into our CEO on the street and you don't know what to say, just blurt out the words net flows and he'll smile and pass along, Right. But we take it very seriously. And we know that our advisors who are doing comprehensive advice with their clients generate an eight times multiplier of the net flows. And that's real measurable numbers. But then once you start to have all these things, and Sam mentioned this, and I loved what he said about Salesforce, you've got to have a system. You've got to have a process. If you're tracking held away assets, things along those lines on a spreadsheet or a post or things like that, I think you're missing out on the technology that's available. Sam, I'm not sure what you see, but we use Salesforce as well. And We've got all sorts of opportunity tracking where we're pinging the advisor on a regular basis, making sure that they're following up on those leads. In fact, the t- one of the teams that currently has got 1.4, God, what is it? One point, I'm sorry, 1.4 billion in targeted assets that are in movement right now that we're following up on, right? So you, you got to build those systems. And the last thing I would say on this is, I think advisors need to think about the seasonality and when certain net flow opportunities present themselves. We're at this really weird time of the year where obviously we're doing benefits review, all those kinds of things. But the conversations that I'm having with some of our more senior advisors and bigger practices are, you service a lot of executives. What are you doing about end of the year strategies? And why am I saying that? Executives are going to be coming into executive compensation at year end, whether it's deferred compensation or it's year-end bonuses, there's usually a massive inflow of cash into the client's portfolio. Are you having a conversation about how you're earmarking that, right? And they oftentimes say, God, I never even thought about that, right? It's just a huge opportunity. So guys, 
hopefully just a little insight as to kind of some of the day-to-day, but that's just how I'm thinking about it. So let me just reinforce a couple of things you said, because there are some nuggets in there. The first is, and we've seen this over and over again, the first is the effect of financial planning on gathering assets. And there's a very specific reason for that. You know, unfortunately, we as a channel have a rich history in being transactional and we're trying to get over that, right? And we are, we're doing more advisory business, et cetera. The amount of financial planning being done is increasing, but historically we've been awful at it, right? So it took about 20 years for us to get with the program and start doing more financial planning and we're seeing it happening, right? So the first thing that I want to put a spotlight on is what you said about what happens when you're working with a client on a financial plan and they see that they have a X percent likelihood of hitting their goal. And it's, you know, that X percent is usually relatively speaking low, right? The first thing they say is, well, wait a minute, I'm better than that, right? There's some other things that we need to put into this plan because I know that my ability to hit that goal is better than whatever it is, 61%, right? And then it just starts coming out. They're like, all right, let's put this in there and see what happens. Oh, I got this over here. Let's see. What a way to uncover and manage assets, right? And there are not enough advisors that have realized that early on, right? They're starting to get it now, but that is that is part of the ability to gather assets. The other thing, Matt, you said, and I want to make sure I heard this right, that you see an eight times increase in net flows when planning is done. Is that what you said? That's exactly right. If we bring on a client that comes into comprehensive financial planning versus not, we see an eight times multiplier in terms of their net flows and a four times multiplier in the GDC that the advisor receives. Yeah, that's huge. So every listener should be noting that because that is a huge lever to pull, right? So thanks for those insights that both of you. I just want to jump in here on, on something Matt mentioned. You know what else would make the really interesting to see in terms of that multiple effect that you see from the financial planning is all the other products and services that are uncovered and that are those solutions become apparent to the to the client in a bigger way and it gives you a chance to really demonstrate the power of your company to bring the full capabilities of that company It'd be interesting to track like how many additional products and services do those clients have in addition to the huge multiple that you're getting on the assets under management. Absolutely, Sam. And and we all know there's six core needs. You've got savings, liquidity, credit, income now, income later, protection, legacy. So how many of those can we grow? Absolutely. Comes out loud and clear. And we're looking from a bank's perspective, those are the core needs. You can't figure out something else. It's going to fit in one of those buckets. I'll also argue later that at least four of those require protection, but that's for a question later on. Matt, well, let's, let's, get, let's dig, thanks Sam, let's dig in a little bit more into financial planning and, and your recipe, so to speak, for the discovery process, since we're talking about brewing things. So I am sure that a good discovery process is essential to what you're doing and understanding a client's needs and their financial situation. So talk to us about your recipe for the discovery, your crafty process, and how you can perfect it and make it repeatable. I have a sense that there's going to be a theme of these questions for me, Bob, based upon my previous answers. <laughs> I, I appreciate it. All right. Yeah. So the discovery process, right? I think there's a couple of things. First and foremost is this. I, you know, I've obviously been a, a client of Ameriprise now for the better part of 15 years. And before that, I was obviously working with other broker dealers. I can tell you, my experience as a client changed when my advisor stopped focusing in on my returns and my assets and started focusing in on my goals, right? Leading with the goals, having a discussion around Matt and Betsy, what are the things that are absolutely most important to you? Changed the game because I stopped thinking about my assets and I stopped thinking about my rates of returns. I started thinking more holistically around what are the things that I want. It wasn't until about 15 years ago where all of a sudden we started to do some serious, serious planning around those things. And anybody who knows comprehensive planning knows that you've actually got to put in the work and you've got to start early to accomplish those things. So I think that's a big part of it. The other part of it, as I think about it, is we've got to build a process so that the clients can do it in a turnkey fashion. And let me explain. I was recently out in California. I was visiting with one of our top practices. And the reason they flew me out there was they were having a problem and just in terms of getting the data back from clients, right, around where the assets were. And they were telling me, Matt, 
we need you out here because it's taking us on average about 90 to 100 days just to get data back around where those assets are held. And so I spent a week out there with the entire team talking about one of our systems that we've built in terms of online data gathering, right, for our financial planning tools, that instead of waiting for your client to deliver a, a shoebox full of statements and things along those lines, or for that matter, even doing it in the client meeting, you can all do it electronically. And what that did is it literally, and, and we just chatted about this the other night, took that data gathering process down from about 100 days down to about seven right? So now all of a sudden you've got those assets at motion, right? You understand where they are, but then there's other technology needs that need to come into play, right? So you've got to have an asset aggregation tool that you're working with to make sure that you're taking a look at all those outside assets and having those linked into your financial planning tools, having those things updated on a nightly basis. So you understand the cues of values of every one of those things and the impact to your plan. You know, what's you're managing, what you're not managing, once the client starts to have that experience and they start to interact with their goals and they can see their probability and all those great things, all of a sudden it becomes a game, right? It's like, what more can I add? Is there other things that I have out there, other assets that I have that I can add into the system and make my net worth number look better? Are there other things that I can do to make this thing appear better? And what can I, what solutions? And it's, it, it changes the onus of the responsibility almost to the client. And it becomes almost, it's not like an app-based game, but that's how everybody's thinking nowadays. It's like, how do you improve your personal score? How do I sleep better? How do I get more steps in all those kinds of things? So Bob, hopefully that answered your question. No, it makes a lot of sense. And what you first says, leading with goals versus returns really ties it right into that. Is my goal to get 12% a year or is my goal to retire at 65? You said it. Sam, I'd love your thoughts on that. Yeah, no, I want to just build on everything Matt said there. You know, I think uh, when, when you put the goal out there, you know, it is a lot about assets, but it's about growing your balance sheet, right? Your own personal balance sheet. It's about growing your net worth. That's the number that people want to be fixated on. And I think that we as institutions that have the benefit of having a bank as well, or having partnerships with banks have the ability to offer that. So those solutions on both sides of the balance sheet to kind of prop that up, because I, I think you're absolutely right, Matt. I think that people want to improve, right? I mean, that's, that's the world that we're living today. And if we could demonstrate ways that we can help move that number in the right direction, we're going to win. I mean, there's just no question about it because it's more than just managing the assets. It's really about managing the balance sheet. I think that's a great point that you make. And, and you know, we, we have, I would say, you know, we have a really good tool with financial planning. We use the Money Guy Pro platform and it's been terrific for us. I think that uh, the challenge that all of us have uh, most likely is adoption, getting people to use it and be able to use the system in a conversation with a client or a prospect. I know that's very difficult to do. You know, people just don't like that clunkiness of it. But if we can find ways to get our advisors to use the tools, it is incredible the value that it could bring because once a client has committed to doing a financial plan, which is a big commitment, right? I mean, we know how many of us like to go through all those expenses, all the, you know, get all the statements out, you know, is this monthly or is this annually? How do I know? And then it goes and sits on the desk, right? It takes discipline to do a financial plan. And to go a step further, what we try to require of our financial planners here, and we have 14 financial planners, by the way, out of the 72 or so people that are in our wealth management business at all different levels, we have 14 financial planners. So what we try to do is get that financial plan, but get the financial plan on both spouses. Because that risk tolerance piece is so important. And you guys both, Scott and Bob, you guys know my wife and you know, you know that our risk tolerances are, are pretty different, right? You know, if something happened to me, she'd probably be scratching her head like, why did we do that? Right? So to really understand the financial planning aspects from both spouses, the money spouse and the non-money spouse, I think is an opportunity to learn more. And it demonstrates that extra step that other people won't necessarily do. And the other thing I would throw out there that we found beneficial and being a community bank, you kind of have this opportunity with the families that you serve. But, you know, most of you, you know, all of you, and Matt, I heard you have two boys, you know, when they're at a point where they're working or they start work or they finish college and they go to work, you know, my three daughters, how often do you get that call? 
dad, I got to fill out my benefits. What's the difference between a Roth 401k and a regular 401k? What's an HSA? Should I be contributing to that? How much should I contribute to my 401k? Now I'm in the business and I know some of the answers to those things, but I don't know all of them necessarily. And that's where I think we can also step in as advisors to support the families that we work with. Uh, because whether you're a kid just coming out of college, you go to work, or you're just starting a new job and you're in your 50s, those questions are difficult questions. And I think that's where we could step up as advisors and really, really help in a different way. And everything you say is right on point because it's the difference of being an advisor and a trusted advisor. And a trusted advisor understands what's going on in the family. And I just went through that a year ago with my son who got his first full-time job and I had to walk him through benefits. Both my kids know about 529s because it's made their life easier, trust me. So, you know, it's that part of it. It's getting to know your three daughters in addition to your wife. We walk, let's see, two, four, six. I think we have nine kids or something like that combined amongst all of us here. And that's part of being a trusted advisor. It's not only knowing the client, it's the client's spouse and the family. Because you don't want to get fired down the road either by the family. So you want to continue that process going on. And it's not that hard. It's really not that hard. That one number on what is the number, what is the percentage of attaining that plan really says it all. So everybody listening to this podcast, just change one thing in your practice. Do your financial planning and focus on that number. Life is going to be different for you as an advisor. You will then become a trusted advisor. I am stepping off the soapbox and turning it over to Mr. Stathis. <laughs> Great point. Right. Well, so I'll give you one, uh, two more observations, and then I have a question for you guys. So the one is, since this question started with discovery, the thing that I don't want to neglect mentioning is that part of a good discovery process, I believe, is digging into the emotional factors that influence the financial decisions. Right. So put as simply as possible, what does it mean to you to take care of your loved ones? Right. I mean, that's a big question for most people that we would work with. The answer to that question, if you dig in, tells you a lot. Right. And it opens up a lot of opportunity. For example, we just released a podcast on long term care. Right. So if part of taking care of your loved ones means that you have elderly parents, well, you want to get into that long term care discussion. Right. If part of taking care of your loved ones means that you have, five kids, <laughs> you definitely want to get into that discussion. And so the point is, those are the emotional factors that create the foundation for a good discovery process. And so I think you have to go there. The other piece of that that's interesting is when you do the stuff that we're talking about and you become that trusted advisor, one of the things that will always happen if you're really good is that your clients are going to start asking you questions that have nothing to do with liquid assets, right? That's when you know you've become the trusted advisor. I mean, it might be like, what's your opinion of these colleges for my kids? Or it may be a real estate question or something like that. The most interesting thing that has happened in some of our discussions recently, and we did an executive retreat two weeks ago, and this was brought up by a crackerjack advisor. He said, yeah, you know, I've been doing a lot with my clients managing illiquid assets now. So I said to him, Matt, because that was his name, <laughs> what do you do from a fee standpoint because you're managing illiquid assets? Do you have fee for service? And he said, well, we're probably going to go there, but we haven't yet. So what I do with those clients is I ask them if I can increase their AUM fees. And I go from typically somewhere around 1% to 1.25%. He said, but I have that discussion. We've been doing this together. It has a lot to do with illiquid assets. Do you mind if I just increase your fees on AUM because of all we're doing? He said, not a single time has the client said no, not once, right? So that's a trusted advisor, right? And that, that's where we want to get to because he manages the majority of his client's assets and he measures that. So he, he knows that. All right. So the next question I have, I'll get off my soapbox and ask a question to pass it back to you guys. And Sam, I think this is a perfect one for you to tee us off on is- the integration of wealth management into the organization, right? So our opinion, and Bob alluded to this, is that clients, financial services clients, have six core needs, and that's it, period. No matter how wealthy they are, it's savings and liquidity is one, credit is two, income now, shorter term goals, right, is three, that's college funding, buying a car, buying a house, whatever. Income later, the retirement-oriented goals typically, that's, what's, what are we at, four, protection is five, and legacy is six. 
As a financial institution, if you don't have wealth management, you can handle about 2.3 of those needs. Literally, you can't handle the rest, right? So wealth management actually handles the majority of those needs. If wealth management isn't fully integrated into the institution, the institution cannot do a great job servicing all the client needs. It's literally impossible. So I think more and more so institutions are realizing the importance of integrating wealth management to gather and retain assets. One of our frustrations has always been that, you know, banks, everybody starts with 100% of their assets in a bank, right? But wealthier they get, the less likely it is those assets stay in a bank. We're letting that happen. We don't have to integrate wealth management. It doesn't happen if you're doing a good job. So all that, the question is, how do you do that? How do you do a great job integrating wealth management into the overall organization so it is part of the holistic servicing that you're doing with your clients? Mm-hmm. Sam? That's a great question. You know, I, there's a simple answer, but it's really, really hard to do. And I, I think a lot of it comes down to the leadership that's in charge of wealth management. And what I mean by that is, if you look at whether it's the balance sheet of an organization, a financial institution, if you look at the income statement, many financial institutions have tried to grow their non-interest income categories over the years. Wealth management is one of those, right? And wealth management really doesn't need any capital to run the bank. So I had a CFO once tell me in the bank that a $1 of wealth business is equal to $3 of net interest income dollars because of the capital that the bank has to set aside for those loans. So the numbers make sense to me, right? The numbers, it's clearly, if you want to diversify your income stream, you want to focus on not some of the non-interest income, but it's still, relatively speaking, in financial institutions, it's a very small piece of the pie. Once you get past deposit fees and other types of fees in the fee income category, wealth management is still pretty small in a lot of organizations. And what I think is really important from a leadership standpoint is that you understand the full, uh, I guess you could say full complementary capabilities of the financial institution. And if you demonstrate that you understand where things fit and how important those six things are that you mentioned, Scott and Rob, you, you guys both pointed to them, then you as a leader within the organization will get a seat at the table. And if you get at the seat at the table, that allows you, and this is all from my own personal experience, It allows you to integrate more with the overall company. You start to get involved more with the strategic planning of the company. You've demonstrated already that you can help retain customers for the bank, right? Which by offering more products and services, there's more profitable customers for sure. But by demonstrating that you have this holistic approach to the bank, and in the case of a community bank, you have to be very very focused on the customer because you can't turn customers away in a community bank. So you have to be mindful that even though a, you know, a smaller investor these days may not produce the types of revenue that a more sophisticated, more, you know, someone with more assets under management, you need to be able to have those conversations and have the people that are willing to help those customers along the way. And one thing we talked a little bit about Salesforce, Matt, Since we've implemented Salesforce, one of the things that we've done is every client relationship has a team. And that team consists of a wealth person, a retail person, and a commercial person. And whether those clients have a relationship across all lines of business today or not, we have that team built. And eventually, we want to get it to a point where when the client looks at their portal, they're going to actually see that team. So it it is very dynamic in that way. And it starts to break down silos. And that's where you get to this kind of synergy approach where it doesn't become part of cross-sell anymore. It becomes, how do we bring new ideas? And how do we help put the customer in the middle of our conversation instead of our own scorecards in the middle? And it becomes a completely different perspective from the senior management of the bank. I'll stop there. Yeah, no, hey, well uh well said. There were a lot of really good nuggets in there. The the whole notion of cross-selling has to be, I think, repositioned because it's it's not cross-selling, it's servicing as many needs as possible. And there's a difference right. between the two. One works better than the other, right? 
I always say, if you try too hard to sell, you'll sell nothing. If you try hard to help, you'll sell a lot, right? Servicing as many needs as possible is the right perspective to have. And I love that team effect. The one example I point to all the time is First Republic Bank knocks it out of the park from a wealth management standpoint. Why? Well, that whole institution has one P&L, not different P&Ls for every department. They are one team working with one sense of purpose for every client, right? And that's ultimately where we want to get to. And one other thing, just to build on that, actually two things. Sometimes it starts within wealth management, right? Because there's competition within the company for that customer as well. And we've been fortunate that we've been able to build a program where, to your point about having one balance sheet or one financial statement, our wealth management team has one goal, one goal. Now, each person has their individual stuff. That's fine. But we have one goal and they are compensated on achieving that goal. So in my mind, I really want our people, if you're going to remove all conflicts of interest, you know, you remove the commission piece out of it and you focus on ad growing at net assets under management, you have the ability to really focus on that customer scorecard and not your own scorecard. And it also, the synergy piece that I talked about, we reward our people for engaging with colleagues across the organization to do a pre-call plan on a customer situation. We reward that activity or that behavior. And we also reward a joint appointment. So if you go on a joint appointment with another colleague from another area of the bank, we're going to reward that. We don't reward the cross-sell because we know that there's a high probability, to Matt's point earlier about financial planning, there's a direct correlation between success and a joint appointment. Yeah. And that's what we focus on. We focus on the right behavior and it appears to be working pretty well. I love that. The correlation between success and a joint appointment, that's very interesting. The other thing you implied several times is the halo effect of a wealth management relationship in the institution, right? And that, that has been documented by a number of firms out there. And there is no disintermediation. It just doesn't happen. The opposite is true. KeyBank is a great example, right? They did a great job tracking the effect of opening an investment account, right? One of their clients opening an investment accounts. So they did a 24-month study where they looked at literally thousands of clients that opened an investment account. They looked at them in arrear, so 12 months back. And then 12 months forward after they open the investment account, so over a two-year period. And the bottom line of all that is once they opened an investment account, right, when you look at the amount of assets they had with the institution for the prior 12 months compared it to the amount of assets they had with the institution for the, the subsequent 12 months, it went up by a minimum of 2x, an average of 2x across these thousands of clients, but they had twice as many assets in the institution after opening an investment account because of the halo effect of just getting into those discussions. Right. So that's powerful. And I think more organizations holistically need to recognize the value and the power of that from a client retention standpoint. Well, client attrition dropped from 14% to 3% among those clients. Right. So that's a big deal. Matt, let me get your thoughts on all this. <laughs> yeah, Scott, you know, it's really funny. You know, I've been sitting here, we've been having this dialogue and, you know, preparing for today. I didn't know what I was going to walk into, whether or not we were going to have similar kind of thoughts and everything else. And, I, and I'm just overwhelmed because like everything Sam talked about is exactly how I'm thinking about it as well. And it's, it's refreshing to see specifically as you think about the integration of wealth management, Sam actually made a comment, oh boy, a question or two ago that I actually think where it's, is where it starts. And that's, you got to have the honest dialogue with your clients around the risk tolerance, right? And I loved what Sam says, because I, I think he's absolutely right. You take a husband and a wife, for example, if you've got a married couple, they oftentimes have different levels of aggressiveness. Now, why is that important? I think it's important because that obviously generates the I in the equation to generate the overall result, right? When you're doing the financial planning equation, work, everything else along those lines. The other reason why it's so important, and I think we as advisors in this industry don't do a good enough job on, is we always focus in on the good things, right? We always talk about based upon this type of portfolio, we're expecting a rate of return of call it 5.6 or whatever. It doesn't matter, right? I love the sophistication of some of the tools that we're using nowadays that can actually show the downside risk, right? I talk to a lot of advisors who are thinking about joining Ameriprise, and I call this the Mike Tyson moment where Mike said, Everyone's got a plan until they get punched in the face, right? You guys all remember that? Yeah. But the tools are actually able to show you, based upon those portfolios and based upon those risk meters, what is the downside risk in certain times where we've seen really atrocious markets, right? 
that integration has to happen because we have to have that honest dialogue with our client. You all know this. I've been through several market downturns in my life and I plan on going through several more. I think we're all in that same situation, but we've got to help our clients understand that. The second thing about this in the integration that I think we've got to do is we've got to have an honest dialogue with our clients around the reality of life that we're currently in today. I know at Ameriprise, I recently had to make a really hard decision to change some of our capital market assumptions and change some of our assumed rate of returns on some of our portfolios. And in essence, guys, what I ended up having to do was, in essence, moving the standard deviation over to the left a little bit and flattening it, right, based upon the market that we're in today. And there were a lot of advisors that were upset with us that we made that decision, but I think it's the right thing to do. The things that are going on in clients' minds right now is not only the asset management side of the business, but what is inflation doing to erode my rates of return, right? And we've got to have honest dialogues about that. And we've got to help our clients understand that the hyperinflation that we're seeing now is not necessarily indicative of what it's going to be for 30 years. And how does that all play together and all of those pieces? So, and then the last comment is, you got to have a platform that meets the needs of their clients, whether it's discretion or advisor focus, whatever it is, right? We've got to meet our clients where they are. A lot of clients are busy. They need that in their life. I know I certainly do. I want to have my advisor have discretion over my portfolios. We've got to meet them where they need. And obviously, you got to hopefully have some great returns that go with it. So, mm-hmm. yep. Yeah. I mean, so there are a lot of pieces of the puzzle, but I think it's interesting we focus on banks and credit unions, right? I think we as an industry are starting to really wrap our arms around the holistic needs a little bit better, right? And I say that because I think the leading organizations in our industry are really starting to get it. And they're not only talking the talk, but they're starting to walk the walk. And it's, you know, it's the top 10%, but I think there's a real sharing of intellectual capital that's going on in our channel. And our channel has the potential to be incredibly competitive in the overall financial services industry when we get this right. And all the stuff we're talking about today will help. All right. So big statement, but Bob, passing it back to you. (laughs) Uh, Thanks, Scott. We've got one last question before we get to the lightning round. And this is always my favorite question. We always try to weave something into the discussion on these podcasts about protection. And we talk about protection, not insurance. And actually last month, the BISA asked me to pen an article about Life Insurance Awareness Month for Portfolio. And we always talk about insurance every September. Every September, we talk about protection. And we've talked a lot about the importance of servicing protection needs on this podcast. But Matt, how do you feel servicing these needs helps in the asset gathering process? Yeah, Bob. So this one, I'll be honest, guys, is is probably more near and dear to my heart than any other topic of any other thing that we can talk about. Hallelujah. (laughs) I am the husband of a two-time cancer survivor, my wife. Uh, First time diagnosed with stage four Hodgkin's lymphoma. Second time had to go through a stem cell uh, transplant, kick cancer's ass both times, right? uh, That's good to hear. I'm sharing that with you because I am the living, breathing epitome of what it means to have protection in place for the people that you care about. My wife is the picture of health when those things happened. Mm -hmm. That rocks you as a person. And I see it as my responsibility to make sure that anybody I care about has those things in place because you never know when those things are going to happen. With that being said, I mean, you're probably getting a sense for how passionate I am about this because it means so much to me. So much, in fact, that I partner with all of the local organizations within Ameriprise to make sure that everything we're doing from a financial planning perspective, the protection needs of the clients are being brought up. And why do I think about that? Great. You meet with your client, you got your goals, you've got your assets, everything else, and you're sitting at a 70, 80, 90% probability, and then all of a sudden you get sick and it's gone, right? It's all gone like that. What are we doing? I don't know. I, I, I seriously push back on every single advisor that I say, why are we not offering protection needs? And they're like, I don't want to be in the protection business. What are you doing? I don't, I seriously don't get it. And the, what we've got to do from an asset gathering perspective is we've got to take inventory, but we've also got to help our clients understand that while protection needs can be somewhat expensive, right? But they don't have to be. Or in fact, one of the things that I love having the conversation with clients about with advisors is let's actually diagnose the need that you have for protection within your own personal needs and what could happen, and then show the long-term ramifications of you purchasing those things, Right. 
what I see over and over and over again is I can go to our financial planning tools, things along those lines, and I can go to any single client and say, listen, one side of the graph here shows that you've got 85% probability, but the good news is you didn't pass away and you never needed this protection. Good news, right? That's the best scenario that we could have hoped for. On the right-hand side, it shows that you did buy those policies from me. You did put that protection needs into place, but your overall picture dropped by 1% of probability. So the question then becomes, is it worth 1% of probability for your long-term goals to make sure all the things that you were nervous about or scared about or the things that could happen are taken care of? Scott, you said this earlier around behavioral advice, right? That is a big thing. People are nervous about that. I'll tell you, I sit with clients and I talk about this all the time. My success rate on getting that business closed is probably 98% because I stop focusing in on the number of what the cost is. Nobody likes that. But I start focusing in on what it actually means long-term. So short answer for you, Bob, but it's something that I'm just really passionate about. And we're starting to see some major upticks here with the advisors that we partner with. So, And it is about growing and protecting. It's a lot about protecting. And we just did a podcast on long-term care. And a lot of folks think that they can self-insure. But do they understand what that really means? No. Do they understand that that part of their protection plan means they have to grow even more assets to cover what could be a $150,000 bill a year for years per spouse. Yeah, you're spot on. It's funny, we're going through benefit review and I did a benefit overview for the team yesterday and I literally walked desk to desk to desk, say, what are you doing from a disability income perspective? You better be maxing that at 65%. And they're like, I don't need it. I'm like, I don't care. I'm pushing the button for you, right? Like you exactly. absolutely need this. <laughs> so. Yeah. Absolutely. It's well worth it. And it, it's peace of mind. It goes back to all of the core ideas of what protection brings to you. That's right. And Sam, I'm sure you have some insight into this as well. Yeah, Matt, first and foremost, you know, I'm marveled and, and, you know, certainly congratulations to your wife and your family for that incredible win. That's, that's a tough battle. And all of us have been through some version of it. And that's really incredible. And, and I think it speaks volumes to what you went through personally, but also how many advisors have you talked to that had to deliver a check to a spouse, a widow, right? And the impact that that's had on a family. And sometimes the excuses start to melt away when you have that emotional impact, financial impact on a family where you've given advice on protection. All of the hard work that goes into any type of insurance, whether it's underwriting, whether it's the paperwork, oh, it's too much work for me, right? And this is one of those things where you have to, this is when you step out and to your point, Scott, you become the trusted advisor. It's not about how much work you put into it, really, it's the output here. And every single, not I shouldn't say every single, but the majority of the financial plans that we do produce two major themes. One, there's an asset allocation rebalancing opportunity, typically. And two, they're either underprotected or overprotected, or the policy isn't working properly, right? And that, to me, is a huge opportunity. And I still think it's an unscratched, uh, we've unscratched, we haven't, <laughs> whatever the saying is, we haven't scratched the surface yet from a financial services industry and really offering that level of protection to our clients because it's still in the low single digits yeah. in terms of, of, of overall solutions that we provide. And we have a captive audience and we should be all over this. It, I, couldn't, I couldn't be more, again, very passionate conversation. You have to see people or you have to show people the benefit of the outcome in order for them to go through this process with their clients. And you're right, we haven't scratched the surface. Yeah, I've been services, and, you know, and the other thing too is I want to take it outside. You mentioned disability insurance, Matt. I want to take it even another step further. How about property and casualty? Yeah, oh, absolutely. Incredible. I mean, just, it's, it's an incredible. We've had businesses, if you want to integrate with your commercial bank, you know, and you can somehow partner in a way where you can provide value to the commercial customers by seeing that they're either paying too much, which is often the case or they could pay the same for more coverage. It's, it's just a, such an opportunity to take a look at the entire spectrum of protection and provide that as part of your offering is, I think, a great growth opportunity. 
And when you mentioned PNC, that's music to my ears because I just went through this myself. I went and called up my provider for my personal liability, my umbrella, and I was going to I was going to decrease it. And they said, well, does this cover your overall assets? And I'm like, no, it does not. So I increased it. (laughs) Right. Well, and to your point earlier, Bob, how does protection lead to uncovering other assets? Just having that conversation. Okay, so this this covers everything then, right? Uh, no, I have a cottage on the lake and three jet skis and, oh, okay. So it just helps that dialogue, helps that relationship. Oh, that's that absolutely I'm does. Stealing, I'm stealing that one from you, man. That was, that was spot on. Uh, I mean, I tell you, I, it, it brought it home to me because I always had a personal umbrella policy because I had a pool. I have two younger drivers and I was going to, I'm like, all right, they're older. I don't have the pool anymore. Let me downgrade. They said, no. What's your retirement portfolio? I'm like, yes, you're right. I don't want that to be at risk. Sign me up. Give me another million dollars on my umbrella. So yeah, you're absolutely right. It goes well beyond what we think normally about protection. It's everything. Mm-hmm. Well, and you know, so we have been in our channel as advisors using the term life insurance, which pigeonholes us, right? And that's why Bob and I are saying, don't use that term anymore. Use the term protection because it opens it up to all the stuff that we're talking about. It's a much more important, much more comprehensive discussion. And if you're truly an organization that wants full integration, then you should be working across departmental boundaries. You should be talking about things like PNC because most banks have that, right? Mm -hmm. And other types of protection. So I think changing the language, right, has an effect on the way you're working with clients. So I think that's an, it's a subtle tweak, but it has ramifications that are important. Yeah. And so, Scott, one other way that we try to spotlight it is we call it risk management. Yeah. And yeah. because, uh, you know, in a lot of ways, that's what it is, right? You're managing risk. And it's also another way to remove that barrier of the word insurance because it, you know, it really is protection. It really is risk management. Yep. Well, and so Sam, this is the other interesting thing. Well, both of you. So we've had this comment on one of our podcasts maybe a year ago, but I've heard it many times since. And that is to your point, Matt, you said that a lot of clients have more than one advisor. It's their idea of diversification, right? We have heard stories where a spouse passed, right? And there were say three advisors All of the assets, once the spouse passed, all of the assets went to the advisor who put a protection plan in place. The Mm. other two advisors didn't keep any of them. And we've heard that same story in a variety Mm. of iterations over and over again. So the subject of this podcast is gathering assets while retaining it as part of it too, right? That is one of the parts of the solution for gathering and retaining assets. You want to put those protection plans in place because you will then manage all the assets of that client eventually, if you're doing that part of your job. All right. So this has been a very interesting and engaging discussion. You guys were both awesome. Let's get to the, I think we just have a lightning round, a fun question left. Is that right, Bob? Uh, yes. And I'm going to pass it to you. Yeah. So I'm going to, all right. So I'll ask the lightning round question. So we're in a shoulder season now, right? So the lightning round question is about the seasons and what is your favorite season? And why? You want to lead us off, Sam? Sure. Well, I mean, it's easy for me. I live in upstate New York and I don't ski. You guys have seen me down at the BISA conference on a number of occasions. And, you know, I'd rather be hanging by the pool or the beach somewhere. So, you know, summertime for us is a special time in upstate New York. You know, when you don't get much of a spring, even we enjoy the fall because a lot of our summer kind of trickles into fall. But, you know, there's just so much to do here. We have the, the Great Lakes are here. There's a lot of boating opportunities, great golf courses, so golfing, all types of outdoor things to do. And there's a lot of outdoor things to do in the wintertime, too. It's just that my family likes to be in warm places, and, and I do, too. And so we gravitate more towards that type of season. And one day, Bob, maybe all four seasons work out because you could be anywhere you want to be, right? <laughs> so I think that's the ultimate goal. Really? That's the way Bob is playing it. I think we need to follow his lead. So Matt, you're in Minneapolis. I'm wondering if you're going to have a similar attitude. (laughs) This was going so well until this question came and all of a sudden (laughs) Sam and I have a difference of an opinion on this one. No, you're absolutely right. So in Minneapolis, obviously we see some pretty cold winters and, and guys, it's my favorite season by far, right? 
I love the feeling when all of a sudden I wake up and there's eight inches of new snow on the ground. Me and the boys are out there shoveling, getting the snow plows out. It's like the it's like a scene out of Grumpy Old Men, right? It's just absolutely fantastic. <laughs> but Sam, you talked about it, right? So we've got boating like a short little season here, but then when when the snow hits, we've got the skiing, right? And I've been snowboarding since I was 16 years old. My eight-year-old has been on skis now for six years. My six-year-old's been on skis for four years. And I'll tell you guys, it's the greatest thing ever as a father going out there and watching them pick up a new sport, especially a sport that's challenging like that. And my eight-year-old particularly is really into going into the, the park, right, where there's lots of jumps. And there's really fun lessons to learn when you watch a kid wipe out 100 times in a row trying to do a trick. And they get up and they do it again. It's so valuable as a father to watch that and then see them land it. It's just a really valuable lesson that nothing in life is easy. And if you keep working on it, you'll achieve some great things. Minus the fact, plus they get to go inside and have a hot chocolate and hang out with two little guys. It's pretty fun. Yeah. It's awesome. <laughs> that is cool. That's good stuff. Great attitude. Bob, how about you? Well, I think Sam alluded to it earlier. I toggle, as many people know, between New York and Florida. So I'm going to go with spring because spring in Florida is summer and summer in New York is summer. So I get like two summers and a spring. So I'm more about warmth. I'm not about ice fishing as much as I've seen it in my travels to Minneapolis in the middle of the winter. Sign me up for spring. Yeah. Well, I'll give you mine. So mine used to be winter, just like you, Matt. I grew up skiing. I was passionate about skiing. I was bored every summer. I just wanted to be in the snow and I wanted to be skiing. I got into the ski industry in another life. So I worked in the industry. But lately, <laughs> since my kids aren't skiing anymore, my wife isn't skiing anymore, there's a little bit less of that. And I'm a big mountain biker as well. I do mountain bike in the winter because I have a fat bike, so I do both. But I am kind of leaning towards when the trails don't have snow on them. And so I'm a little bit more of a summer, fall type of a guy now than I used to be. But I still appreciate the winter. I do a lot of cross-country skiing right from my backyard, so that's fun. And I get downhill every once in a while, but I don't know. I'm in New England, right? Try and embrace them all, but leaning towards summer a little bit these days, probably because I'm getting more gray hair. <laughs> <laughs> At least you didn't say you have an electric bike. Then I'd be I really will never worried. go there. It's, <laughs> I do it for exercise. <laughs> what kind of frame are you riding? Are you riding carbon fiber these days? You're not on aluminum anymore, are you? Well, I'm on what's called a Ibis Ripmo AF. And AF oh, yeah. stands for aluminum frame, but it's a pretty high-end bike. And it's a I pretty... It's a rugged bike. Yeah. So it's, uh, I didn't, you know, carbon cost a load of money and I had a tough time justifying that with all the other financial responsibilities around. <laughs> I know that world really well. I used to race mountain bikes when I was a kid. So lots oh, of broken bones as a result of those things, but man, is it fun. So good for you. Blast. Yeah. Do it all the time. All right. Well, I think that's a wrap and you guys have been, uh, like I said, you've been awesome and very engaging. This was a great discussion and we look forward to releasing this podcast. So thank you very much. And Bob, I know you always have official closing comments queued up. So go for it. Yes, I have official closing comments. And also all of our listeners like to know what my top three takeaways were from this podcast. I actually have five. I'll go through them real quickly. One of them was, I think something that Sam mentioned was this three points of growth. Work the bank, work the book, and work the community. Those centers of influence are very important to putting assets back into the community. Number two, be a planner for the family, not the client. Very important comment there. What's your number? What's the likelihood of successfully reaching your goal? Is it 40, 60, or 90%? That will help you uncover more assets. And then we heard that Mike Tyson says everyone has a plan until they're punched in the face. Could not let that one go. And I don't think Mike Tyson has ever been mentioned on a podcast before that we produced, but Mike Tyson has made the top five. <laughs> What, did I miscount or was that just four? Okay, well, <laughs> I, okay, well, I have another one. Thank you for reminding me. Okay. <laughs> that protection is worth the work. We have not scratched the surface. There you go. <laughs> that was five. I, I was no, a little worried because, like, you know, there are three types of people in this world, those that can count and those that can't. Yes. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> that was that was kind of a layup for you. So thanks again to our panel once again. Sam and Matt, it's been a lot of fun. Thanks to Jeff Hartney and Kat Seifer from the BISA. And thanks to Ameriprise for their continuing sponsorship of this podcast series. 
Don't forget the other two podcast series on our industry. That's Untangling Fintech and Industry Leadership and Success. These can be found wherever you get your other podcasts. What? You don't listen to podcasts? Well, start. Anyway, it's time to say goodbye. So we hope you've enjoyed the show. And say goodbye, Scott. Goodbye, Scott. <laughs> See you guys. And Bye, Scott. Guys. See you, Bob. Thanks nice to meet you, man. Thank you. Pleasure Take meeting care. all of you. Yep. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for joining us for this episode of BISA Industry Trend Watch. And thanks to Ameriprise for their much appreciated support. Be sure to subscribe to our two other podcast series, Industry Leadership and Success, focused on industry-leading performance and success stories, and Untangling Fintech, aimed at helping you keep up with the evolution of technology offerings in our industry. Goodbye until next month.